understanding that every single person, no matter what it looks like on social media or you know how successful they've been, uh, everyone is is going through those things, and the people that are relentless are the ones that keep keep trudging and keep rising above. Hey, everybody, Emily Abadi here. You are listening to episode 241 of Hurdle, a wellness-focused podcast where I connect with everyone from your favorite athletes to top experts and industry CEOs about their highest highs, toughest moments, and everything in between. We all go through hurdles in life, and my goal through these discussions is to empower you to better navigate yours and move with intention so that you can stride toward your own big potential and, of course, have some fun along the way. For today's episode number 241, I am chatting with Katie Hoff Anderson, who at just 15 years old made her first Olympic team. Once hailed as the female Michael Phelps, she withstood so much pressure and emerged from years of effort and valuable lessons learned on what it takes to succeed and power through bitter disappointment as an eight-time world champion and two-time Olympian with a silver and two bronze medals all before retiring. In today's episode, we talk about the importance of mental health, something that she says wasn't really talked about back when she was competing. Plus, how happy she is to be a part of driving that conversation and the importance of us taking care of ourselves today. She also talks about transitioning out of being a full-time athlete and what that has looked like running a business with her husband, Todd, as well as getting into the speaking circuit. Plus the female empowerment work she's doing alongside companies like The Lash Lounge and what it means to have a relentless spirit. Such a, oh man, such a good conversation here. So happy to bring it to the feed. Appreciate Katie's transparency and honesty. And also after this combo, I was super inspired to go grab her book. It's called Blueprint. I'm gonna link to it in the show notes. If you're not yet doing so, make sure you're subscribed to the Weekly Hurdle Newsletter. It's our newsletter that comes out every single Friday morning, bringing so much of the same inspiration, motivation, and goodness you love from the show and putting it directly in your inbox. Make sure you follow us over on Instagram at Hurdle Podcast. I am over at Emily Abadi, and I call for it every week. Every week you think about doing it, make this one the week that you do leave me a voice message. Ask me a listener question. I got so much feedback from you, the hurdlers last week that you love five minute Friday, but if you want me to keep making it, I'm going to need some more listener questions. So whatever's on your mind, any question, nothing's off limits. Click on over the show notes, click, leave me a voice message. And if for some reason you have an issue there, feel free just to send hello at hurdle.us a voice recording from your phone that totally works for us. That's it for now. With that, let's get to it. Let's get to hurdling. Today, I am chatting with Katie Hoff Anderson. She is a two time Olympian, a three time medalist, an eight time world 
champion swimmer. How are you doing today, Katie? I'm great. How are you? Thanks for having me. I am so good. I'm so happy to have you here today. Three days ago, you moved to Nashville. How does it feel? It feels amazing. Honestly, we're one, we have a ton more space. So it's an actual house and I've done apartment living. I've lived in Miami, Chicago, New York. So that is amazing. I didn't understand the value of space until I got here. And then two, I mean, we already did a a big neighborhood run and I just love the environment. So we're really, really happy. You're no stranger, as you said, to moving around. Do we expect that Nashville will be a little bit more permanent? That is the hope. I'm hope. I feel like, you know, every city I've moved to, there's been some like, oh, like, you know, we'll deal with this or deal with that. And I feel like Nashville for both me and my husband feels like it checks all the boxes in every way, business, personal, family. Uh, so we're hoping, we're hoping that the 10 moves in 10 years is over and we can be here <laughs> and we can be here long term. So. Oh my gosh. 10 moves in 10 years. I can't even process that. I mean, I've moved four times in 10 years and I thought that was a lot. It, you know, and I feel like every time I'm like, okay, well, like I'm more experienced. Like it's fine. It sucks every single time. <laughs> like no matter how prepared you are, you know, how far in advance you plan, but you know, we got through it. Shout out to my mom who flew down from Baltimore and helped us drive a 20 foot U-Haul truck. So that was really helpful, but we're getting settled and, um, you know, it's, it's worth, it's worth it. Moms are always the MVPs. Well, again, despite the craziness, I'm happy that you were able to make the time to sit down. 10 moves in 10 years. Life is looking a lot different these days than it used to for you. You had highlighted that this will be a good fit for you when it comes to career. So what are you up to right now, Katie? Oh my gosh. Uh, A variety of different things, which is kind of how I like it. I like to stay busy. Uh, So I do some work with my husband. So we have a company called Synergy Dryland. So it's actually, a lot of people don't know this, but Swimmers have to do things on land and we have to be coordinated and we have to build strength and and mobility and stability. And so we have a virtual company that works with some teams across the nation to help their swimmers, uh, you know, stay injury free and be faster. So that's been really, really rewarding and fun to be involved in the sport in a way that I never imagined. Um, I do some advocacy work with the National Blood Clot Alliance. I do different speaking and motivational work with different companies. Um, and most recently started work with the Lash Lounge, um, which has been fantastic just because they have such an amazing message uh, in terms of empowering women and and helping to instill confidence, which is obviously literally all I'm all about. So that's, <laughs> that's been fun. So many things to dive into here. Yes. Wow. No pun intended, but <laughs> I don't know if I've ever used that on a podcast. With a it just came to you because uh, I'm here. <laughs> you mentioned doing work with the Blood Clot Alliance. For those that may not be familiar with your story, can you tell us a little bit about why that is a cause that's so close to your heart? Yeah. So I... My, my career actually ended because I got a pulmonary embolism. And I say that in, in explaining what a pulmonary embolism is, because when I was diagnosed, I had no idea what that meant, you know, how many people die a year. Like there's just not a lot of resources and understanding of, of how deadly a blood clot can be. Um, so I, yeah, I ended up having two in my right lung, um, took me forever to get diagnosed and finally got the diagnosis after about two months. And, you know, obviously in any sport in life, but specifically in swimming, lungs are kind of important. And so it was something, yeah, it was something that was career ending. And 
and just felt, I mean, devastated and lost in, in all of the emotions. And so now being able to uh, speak with physicians, speak with doctors, build out resources for people of things that I didn't have when I was diagnosed, which was back in 2014, um, has been extremely, I would say, the silver lining of it all, of something that was obviously, you know, very, very tough at the time. Yeah, I cannot even imagine how it must have felt for you to go so long without a diagnosis. Yeah, I mean, I felt crazy, you know, like as an athlete, you're just one, you're just trained to push through everything. So I think part of that mentality of just pushing through, I didn't even understand the early signs and symptoms. And then to have this, I mean, it was like, literally a sword was being shoved in my rib area. Um, I passed out because I couldn't even take in air. And, and then I was told that I, it was just like an intercostal strain, which is still painful, but I was like, I think I can push through that. This seems different. And I mean, doctor to doctor to doctor, just kind of profiling me as, oh, well, you're healthy, you're strong, like, you know, what's going on? And then ultimately being told, you know, your your career's over, but you should be grateful to be alive, which I always, when I, when I speak to doctors, I'm like, that's awesome, but I don't want to just be alive. I want to thrive. And imagine someone came into your office and was like, hey, you know, all the work you did to go through medical school and, you know, put in your time and your residency and have someone come in and be like, guess what? you're no longer practicing medicine, but, but grateful to be alive, you know? And I think that's part of my uh, message is helping to educate how to work with patients who do survive, right? Obviously there's a hundred thousand people that die a year, which is not okay. And that number needs to go down, but the people that get the diagnosis, like the PTSD, um, which I still have, and the, this trauma of, of not feeling like you can return to normal life affects I mean, millions of people. Yeah, yeah. And for you at that time, a career-ending injury, did you feel like you had more to give? Yeah, I mean, the the sad part about it is, so I had my first two Olympics. My my second Olympics, you know, was, was crazy. I swam five events and was called the female Michael Phelps, which amazing honor, but intense amount of pressure. And I truly didn't really enjoy like sit there and be like, wow, I have Hoff on my cap. I have, you know, I'm representing the United States. I didn't ever really get to appreciate those moments because I was always just like next thing, next thing, next thing. And so when I made a comeback for 2016, I was actually at a stage in my career where I could enjoy the training, enjoy the process. I feel like I was really owning everything I was doing. Um, and I had enough perspective to actually look around and go, wow, this is, this is really special. And so to be thwarted that ability to come back and make my third team and actually <laughs> appreciate the moment was really tough because I felt like I was really hitting my stride. I was training out of this world. I was training, you know, top times. And so my husband and I always say like, the only people that truly knew what I was about to accomplish was my coach my husband and me and maybe a couple teammates. But um, I think that part, you know, whenever you end something, regardless, whether it's in sport or career, personal, and it's not on your own terms, it's really, really difficult to handle that and, and know what to do next. What changed? And I asked that in what changed for you going from this place of what's next, what's next, what's next? to being able to appreciate the moment that you were in and the journey that you were on? 
I think a couple different things. I took a year off. So, you know, between leading up to 2004, I mean, I was 15 years old at my first Olympics. So I I wasn't have a license, right? Like I didn't have the maturity to look around and not do what's next, what's next. Um, And I think, you know, after 2008, it, it was, again, it was like, I didn't have a, I didn't have enough time. I didn't have enough awareness to realize that I needed to take a second, maybe work through it in therapy. You know, I, I always say like back then it, it's, you know, mental health and that piece of things wasn't talked about in the same way that it is in 2023. And so I wish that I had talked about it and worked through everything that had happened at that point. I think it wouldn't have felt like I was just like kind of being tossed around and not really owning and and conquering what was in front of me. And so I think just time, which is always such a hard thing for people to hear is like, just time, just be patient, right? There's no magic bullet. But that for me was what it was. And then deciding on my own terms, okay, like I want to do this. I want to make a comeback. I'm, I'm grateful for what this sport is, is giving me. Um, that I think was the biggest difference. This topic of mental health, something that has become so much more openly discussed these days. When you see that, how does that make you feel reflecting on your journey? A couple feelings. One, maybe a slight amount of regret as I wish that that was there. I wish that I had focused more and and I sought out some, but I I don't think I realized just how impactful that can be. Um, And then I would say just, you know, excitement for others that that is something that's being talked about. And that is something that hopefully is going to allow athletes and, and, you know, anyone continue on and find more happiness and joy. I think a lot of times you just shove it down, you keep going forward and you don't realize that it's festering and it's, you know, contributing to why you're irritated or why you're acting a certain way or why you're, you know, not treating someone the way they should be treated. You don't realize it. And I think now because it is so prolific and it is so talked about, people are going going to therapy and chatting through it. And I'm hoping it just makes a kinder world out there, which <laughs> uh, we still have a ways to go, but um, I'm, I'm hoping that that's, that's what it can do. You know, it, it also like brings us forward to that moment when you're talking about having all of this pain, right? When it came to the blood clots and, you know, that in itself, having a constant pain, it's distracting and it's anxiety inducing and it produces this catabolic energy, which then prevents you from being your true self, right? If you have this constant pain and all of this energy present that distracts you from what's going on, then not only is that going to prevent you from executing and acting how you wish to act, but it's also going to affect you mentally. Oh my gosh. I mean, I, at the point of, you know, seven weeks before I got a diagnosis, I, I was like, okay, I'm just not as tough as I thought I was, you know, made two Olympic teams, one Olympic medals. I guess I'm not that tough. You know, I just couldn't, I kept trying to practice and I just couldn't do it. And so, I mean, I was, that was, I've had a couple lows in my life and my career, but that was one of the lowest. I just, my entire identity was being tough and pushing through things and, and being able to go after it. And this was kind of the first time where I just couldn't, you know, my body was just not letting it happen. And I mean, I remember just every time I go to an appointment being like, please let there be something wrong with me at this point. Like, I don't care what it is. I just need to have some type of answer. Yeah. Yeah. At at that point, when you were in this low place, talk to me about the day to day. What were you doing 
to cope with the uncontrollable? Crying. (laughs) I mean, definitely upset. I I think the thing that got me through was just my support system. You know, my, my husband, my parents, um, you know, close friends, my coach, I just, I'm someone who like, I have to keep, I have, I always say I have to go emotional first in order to get to logical. And you obviously have to get to logical in order to make decisions and, and, you know, drive forward action, but I have to get it all out first to make sense of things. And so for me, I mean, prior to the diagnosis, I just kept trying, like I kept trying different doctors, kept asking questions, kept trying to advocate for myself. And then once the diagnosis was there, it was that next step of, okay, like, here's what it is. Like you need to decide, are you going to keep trying to make this work or are you going to close a chapter? And that again was a lot of talking to my inner circle, all of those things to to ultimately arrive at the right decision. I want to dial it back to the beginning of your journey going into your first Olympics at 15 years old. What was it like for you at that point to have eyes on you as a young teenager? Very surreal. And I don't think I even had an appreciation for it until now, because now we work with young athletes and I see their day to day and what they go through and different pressures that happen at a meet. And I look at that, I'm like, oh my gosh, like I was having, you know, the Today Show and all these big outlets and, and, you know, millions of people put these expectations on me. And I actually don't even, I mean, I didn't handle it well, but to, I mean, I hadn't, I hadn't ever been on a national team. I hadn't ever been out of the country. I hadn't been away from my parents for more than three days and it was six weeks. Like there were so many things that put me in such a uncomfortable and new and foreign situation. I just remember feeling like a deer in the headlights, being excited that I was on Olympic team and then having this realization of like, oh my gosh, like I've been dreaming of going to the Olympics my whole life. That now means I have to go compete in the Olympics and not just make the team. And it, yeah, it, it was it was really tough. And I felt I now I I feel like I had imposter syndrome. I didn't I didn't you know I was looking at people on the team and I had their like Jenny Thompson is just a legendary swimmer and I had her poster on my wall like two years before. So like it was this like massive jump and leap into the spotlight. And, uh, yeah, I just, I just wasn't ready for it, uh, mentally, physically, I'd say I was, but just mentally, emotionally, I was not ready. I giggle a little bit about like the line, my whole life at 15, right? Like so much work had already (laughs) gone into it at that point. And you were about to step onto such a world stage at such an early, early age. It's truly, truly phenomenal. When you showed up to competition, were you able to express any of these feelings or did you feel like part of the whole shebang was keeping those to yourself? Yeah. I mean, at that point, you know, my coach wasn't able to come on the trip. It's interesting how the Olympic team works. They select certain coaches. And so, you know, if you're newer, you you aren't swimming a lot of events, your, your coach doesn't come with you. So I didn't, feel like I had anyone that I could express that to. And I also feel like I, I didn't know if other people were feeling the same way. Like I look, when I looked around, like everyone seemed confident and happy and, you know, no one seemed like they were freaking out, which I now know is the opposite. Everyone's freaking out. Everyone's nervous. It doesn't matter if you're Michael Phelps or anyone else, you are, you're freaking out. It's the Olympics. And so 
um, keeping that in for me, especially the way, like I'm such an extrovert. I have to get things out. I just like have to throw up my feelings. And so that I think, I think if I'd had someone there or, and I think they've done a much better job as we've gone forward. Like I hear about experiences now, there's a, a lot of younger girls who are on the team and there's that support system, but it just wasn't there. I just, there was even some bullying that was happening on the team. So it was just, a, yeah, just an all around, like name all the things that could be challenging and and they were there. <laughs> so You said it, not me. The words throw up. <laughs> <laughs> Yep. I did not mean to lead you into that, but yep. (laughs) But you did. But I did actually, not just figuratively. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Scarring for life. Yeah. I mean, so, and it's funny because people are, people always say like, oh, you threw up because it was so painful. And it's like, well, yeah, my, the 400 I am, which was my, still to this day, my best race is really painful. But I think it just, I got in the ready room looked around and I think I stopped breathing in the ready room for the, you know, five to eight minutes before we paraded out for prelims. And so I remember hitting the 250 meter mark, which you still have 150 meters to go like a minute and 40 seconds. And it was like, I literally have nothing left. Like that went through my head. And so I think it was, you know, a buildup of lactic acid, but it wasn't any more painful than I'd experienced before. And getting out and just feeling so sick to my stomach and throwing up all over the pool deck in front of the entire stadium on TV cameras. Um, I always say like, imagine you have a dream, like, you know, when you have like a big speech or event or something at work and you have usually, I usually have dreams or nightmares of something that could happen. And I always say like, you know, that nightmare that you have, like that was actually my reality. Like, oh, I threw up all over national TV and it, I mean, thank God that, you know, Instagram wasn't what it is today and social media, because I can't even imagine how much more humiliating that would have been. But I mean, even for about eight months after that, like if you Googled my name, that was the first Google image that popped up. And so my parents actually had to call and say, can you please take down this picture of like our daughter, like literally mid throw up. So, you know, I think in the moment I, I was probably a little bit more oblivious to it. Thank goodness. But I was still reading stuff and seeing things. And I mean, that could have been the end right there, to be honest with you. (laughs) But it wasn't the end. Also, I think there are a lot of people that would like love the phone number of who they can contact at Google to like switch (laughs) whatever photos are in their search history up. But for you, like I said, wasn't the end. In fact, you went on to do some really, really amazing things. I mean, three gold medals, 2005 world championships, three more in 2007, and then on to Beijing. So once you get to Beijing, are you going into this with the mindset like this is my time? Yeah, I mean, I kind of went on a revenge tour after 2004 and I just had this moment of like, I can go this way and be done or I can show that, you know, this meet was just not a fluke and I'm here to stay. And I obviously went on the I'm here to stay and I'm going to do this. And so, I mean, from that, from 04 to 08, I, I felt like I could do no wrong. Like I just had such momentum and I was, you know, breaking American records and world records. And it just felt like all the stars were aligning. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, 08 very much in my mind was like, here's where I, you know, here's where I do it. Right. I, I've done everything that up until this point of, you know, American, it's kind of like your know, world championship gold, gold medal, American record, world record. Those are kind of all the boxes to check. 
Uh, and then at the same time, obviously, because I was swimming so many events, the the comparisons to Michael Phelps were inevitable, especially because we both were rep by Speedo and we both, you know, were young at 15 when we made our first Olympics, same club team. So there was, it's like, good job media. Like it's not that, it's not that creative to make these comparisons, but it certainly added about, you know, a thousand pounds of expectations on my shoulders when I hadn't even won one Olympic medal heading into 2008. Yeah. I'm just sitting here thinking, like trying to put myself in your shoes and thinking about what would be for me like a deep desire just for people to refer to me as me, not to discredit like how cool it could be to compare be compared to Michael Phelps briefly, but the like expectation and nature of that just gives me anxiety sitting where I am. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, and I, again, like you're when, you, when you're in it and it, things are swirling, you don't even realize you're just kind of like in survival mode. And so I remember when the comparisons started happening and I just thought, oh my gosh, like I'm not eight gold medals. I'm not going in ranked, you know, first in all my events. And I remember I had traded the world record back and forth with Stephanie Rice, the Australian, actually still a good friend of mine. And just thinking, you know, even if I have some of my best swims, which I just had an insane Olympic trials, I won five events. Like I was still, I still felt the weight of the world on my shoulders because obviously you're doing interviews and and I only could control what I could control. But uh, I just remember feeling like this, this feeling in the pit of my stomach, the closer we got, right? And after you make the team, they do a better job of this now. You actually get to go home and, and spend time with your, you know, your club team and all of that. But at the time, you literally like send a box of clothes to training camp because you go straight from Olympic trials. It's an eight-day meet. It's grueling. It's, it's the United States. So you, you have to be, I mean, on your A game to, to make the team. And you just go immediately into training camp, which is in California. So there's no break there. Um, and I just remember, you know, we have I'm like, all right, we have what, 43 days till the games. Each day they got closer. It was just like, there was like, a, you know, twisting and just kept twisting tighter and tighter, um, you know, until, until day one of the games. Yeah. And did you feel as though when you didn't win the gold and the 400 free and you then you know, there's, it takes two world records to beat what is your original 400 individual medley. Like it for you, did you feel like that was worse because of all these comparisons that have been made between you and Phelps? A hundred percent. You know, I actually, I'll share this. I I have the video. I will probably never post it, but it, you know, you look at, at how athletes are celebrated right now, right? right? If someone who's coming up and they don't have, you know, Phelpsian expectations on them. They win a silver medal and they're celebrated and people are like, they win a medal in general and they're celebrated. Right. And I had this moment during the last Olympics where, um, I started crying because I was watching these athletes be celebrated and they were excited and they were hugging because they won a medal for their country. And I never got that feeling because it was like, well, yeah, if you're expected to win eight gold medals, winning three medals, isn't a, you know, a success. But I just had, I just felt like, wow, like I feel like, and maybe it's just where I'm at in my, you know, my perspective, but I felt like athletes who were just winning medals and maybe it wasn't gold were really being celebrated. And I was like, wow, that's so cool because it gives me chills to talk about. Like, that's so cool. Um, but when I look back on the experience, it was actually a really good meet for me. You know, the 400 I am was like half a second off my best time ever, which was like you said, the world record at the trials and just on that day, right? Two women went faster. 
the 400 free, you know, got touched out, but you know, it was, that was probably the one that wasn't my best race, but I actually wasn't the favorite in that race at all. It was definitely the 400 I am broke the American record in the 200 free fastest time ever by American three people happened to go faster anchored the relay, the fastest split ever by an American. And again, like we broke the road record, but two other teams did too. So just, I mean, there's just so many instances where I just kept in every race. I just kept getting pummeled by the media. Like we call it the mixed zone. So when you get out of the pool, first of all, you like can't breathe, <laughs> You're like dying. And you have to go through this little maze where like all the media from all over the world is. And it just, I just kept getting like, what happened? What happened? Are you upset? You know? And like, I just, you know, the, especially the day one, I'm like, I just won my first Olympic medal. I overcame what happened in 04. And so looking back, I'm like, man, like I actually, you know, I actually had like a really successful meet and it was just how it was painted in, in the media, um, which is why I get extremely passionate when I, anytime someone negative, like Michaela Schifrin, when that was going down at the Olympics, I was so fired up because I'm like, you can't, a, it's one day, like she has so many other accomplishments and B it's you're still winning medals, you know? So it's just, it's just how, how things are, are portrayed. And, and that's just kind of the way it is. Yeah. And you're so entitled to all of those feelings, right? Like you're entitled to have frustration. And it's also just so impressive now to hear you speak on, you know, what had happened at that Olympics and have so much perspective on it because you could have made the choice to move forward with one perspective, one view on it. But since then, having had time to reflect on it, maybe now more so, would you say, today you're more proud than you were back then? Oh, 1000%. I mean, I couldn't even, I couldn't even really, I didn't want to even pull out my medals for like four or five years. Like people mm. would be like, oh my God, like I want to see your medals. And I would always be like, yeah, here, like, you know I mean? And the first time I actually admitted that publicly was, um, I did a TEDx talk in 2018 and I was like, do I let it rip? Like, do I see, you know, I was always didn't know what people would think because to your point of, you know, obviously winning Olympic medals is amazing. But when you're, when you're framed in the light of it should be eight gold medals or five gold medals, it's not seen as successful or I felt guilty about feeling that way. And so I just said it and ripped the bandaid. And I think that was really a pivotal point in my life because one, it was received so well because I was so raw and so vulnerable. Um, and two, it just kind of allowed me to, like I said, throw it up, get it out there. And it was just this moment of, you know, obviously we'll always like, if you, when you set a goal and you don't get there, right. I always, I always am going to have that little feeling of like, ugh, like I didn't get that gold medal, but at the same time, I have much more of an appreciation of, of what it takes to even get to the Olympics, let alone yeah. win a medal. Um, and so I, you know, it's, it's a process and it's always going to be one, but I think at this moment, yes, like I normally, if I hadn't just moved, you'd have, you'd see the medals behind me. Um, so I definitely have more of more pride than ever. I love to hear that. You mentioned your TEDx talk, the talk itself called finding your relentless spirit. What is your relentless spirit? <sighs> the cool thing about your relentless spirit is it's different for everybody. Um, and so for me, it's just the ability to keep battling and keep fighting and keep moving forward, 
no matter what, I, I have this thing called your due. So whenever you're kind of going through it and you, and you know, you feel like there's a rain cloud following you, you're like, what the heck? Like, go away. You know, I'm always like, you're due, you're due, right? Like enough things happen to you. And, and if you stop, right, that due, you're due for something positive and amazing won't happen. And so for me, like that relentlessness is someone who can just keep putting one foot in front of the other, no matter what, even when it feels like the sky is falling. Um, and, and, you know, you'll, you'll be able to accomplish pretty extraordinary things. Um, but <laughs> we say that all the time, like two weeks ago, I said to my husband, I'm like, we're due, we're due. <laughs> Cause it was just, everything was falling apart, but understanding that every single person, no matter what it looks like on social media or, you know, how successful they've been, uh, everyone is, is going through those things. And the people that are relentless are the ones that keep, keep trudging and keep rising above. Taking a break from today's episode to give some love to AG1 from Athletic Greens. AG1 replaces key health products in one simple scoop, combining nine health products working together as one, replacing your multivitamin, multiminerals, pre and probiotics, immunity support, and more. What this means, honestly, is that AG1 just does more for your body. And it saves you time, money, and confusion compared to taking multiple unique products. Seriously, before I started shaking up AG1 every single day, I would just like haphazardly walk into my local CVS and buy whatever gummy vitamins were on sale. Now I know that every single day by incorporating this into my routine, I am giving my body exactly what it needs and also what I deserve. I do get a lot of questions of what it tastes like. The best way I can sum it up is really, I think it has like a sweet taste compared to other greens with notes of pineapple and a little hint of vanilla. Oh, I think it's refreshing and yummy and that's why I think I'm on... I mean, at least year four of drinking this every single day, whether I'm here at home in Brooklyn or on the road. Now, of course, AG1 has an offer for you. If you head on over to athleticgreens.com slash hurdle, you can get five free travel packs and a year's supply of vitamin D for free with your purchase. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash hurdle to get your freebies today. How does someone become more relentless? I would say a couple different things. I would say number one, you have to build your, I'd say your trust tree around you. You cannot do it alone. Like it is, it will be literally impossible. So I think one, analyzing who are the people around you, who are your mentors? It's the number one question I ask people. I'm like, that they're going through something or they're trying to build a business or whatever they're, they're trying to do. It's like, who are your mentors, right? Who are the people that you're going to turn to when you need advice and you, and you need some extra support. And if you don't have that, go find it because it, it's not going to happen without that. Um, then obviously your loved ones and your friends, and, and I think always analyzing that, right? If you don't stop and analyze who's around you, why am I doing this? Um, you're not going to be able to battle back. If they're, you know, if you're going through some really, really sucky, hard stuff and you can't look and go, there's my North star. That's why I'm doing this. You won't be able to be relentless, but you have, you have a very, very concrete 
vision and understanding of that, you will always like, it'll almost like just kind of grab you and, and pull you back up just, just automatically. And I think that's what I struggled with. Like, obviously as a professional swimmer, it was always like win medals, Olympian, all of those things. And then I always say to people, I'm like, I had to start over too. So like, yes, at age 10, I was like, I'm going to the Olympics. That's my North star. But I had to redefine and find a new North star when I retired um, because I, that was ripped away from me. Yeah. Yeah. So you're saying two things to be important here. One, having a great support system and being cognizant of those that are around you, but two, really being able to reiterate and be specific about what your why is. Why is it that you are going after the things that you have at one point or another articulated to be of importance to you? Yeah. And I would say there's different ways to look at that, right? Like some people could say like, well, I'm in this, like, oh, I hate my job or I'm, you know, doing this and and it really sucks. Well, like a lot, there are a lot of times throughout the last, you know, six years of retirement where I hated what I was doing. Right. But it served a purpose. So if you can see like, okay, like I'm doing this job, the hours are really rough and it's, I, I, I just, it's making me miserable. Maybe it's time to switch, or maybe there's something that, you know, lesson that it's teaching you or skill set that's going to then, you know, springboard you to the next thing. So I think that is really important. Like it's super easy when, when times are tough to just be like, oh, this sucks and just kind of throw your hands up. But I think taking a second and that's where the mentors help, right? Because sometimes you're so emotional and so in it that you can't see the bigger picture, I think that that piece is something that I did really well over the last six years is just being able to have an understanding of the why even in the suck. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I know that you didn't necessarily share a lot about your perspective on the events that happened in your career until more recently around 2019. Why? What was the catalyst for that? What was the catalyst for you to be more open about your POV? I mean, the TED Talk was really, like I always go back to that, it was a really pivotal moment because I always thought that, oh, well, I can't share my story or my sh- my story is not going to help anyone because I just felt like there was, I mean, there's so many positives in my career. I just felt like if I, how can I talk about my story without talking about the downs? And if I don't talk about the downs, then that's a super not authentic story. And I would feel so... Uh, just terrible about not being real with people. And so I was constantly battling this. I, I even tried to write, I tried to write my book probably four or five different times throughout, you know, right before I actually did go out and, and write the book and just couldn't do it. Like I would have these emotional breakdowns. So like I kind of referenced earlier, like if you don't address things, it, it's going to manifest itself negatively in in different ways, right? And it was just, I was depressed. I was irritated. Like I just... I couldn't focus. And so I feel like my reason and catalyst was the TED talk of just being, it being received so positively and people saying, no, like this is like, everyone goes through hard times. Everyone's got to get back up. Like this is, this is a message that people need to hear. And this could positively impact people. And it was kind of this moment of thinking, wow, like that could be a new North star for me. Like I, I always say like all the bad stuff that happens, like it'll eventually make sense, right? And it has to come around full circle. And I always say like, I want it to make sense. And so this is the first time a decade later where I was like, oh, this makes sense. Like this is what I'm supposed to do. And same thing with the blood clot. Like, oh, okay, 
this makes sense. Maybe I can now help, you know, elicit change and, and generate awareness so that people don't go through the same thing as me. And so that just kind of created a snowball effect of starting to share my story more and, and then writing the book and then having that come out. And it just one kind of chain reaction, one thing after the next. What was the hardest part about owning your story? I think just revisiting some really sad times, you know, and, and my, I, I worked with a fantastic ghostwriter and he was essentially a coach. Like we would talk about a moment and he would be like, that was surface level. Go, go deeper. Like, no, you know, and, and, and then I would, and I mean, it, I had to kind of go through some of those emotions all over again. Right. And, you know, having to do that a decade later, my husband would come home from work and he would be like, what year are you in? Like, you know, and, and I'd be like, yeah, 2009 or yeah, you know, so I think that part was scary. And then the, then the next piece that was terrifying was publishing it and just feeling like everyone who read the book could just see into my soul. I just felt so naked and so open because I had, I had always said like, I'm going to be raw, vulnerable, authentic. Like I have to be, if I'm going to put this out. And again, like I had so many people recommend the book to someone who was, you know, in a tough time or, you know, send me messages about how it, it positively impacted their athlete or their mom who was going through a tough time at work. Right. So like getting those messages made it all worth it. Um, and just really empowered me to keep sharing my story in, in a really authentic way. And not only like a book that was recommended to others going through difficult times, but then to see the recommendations that are a part of the book from both Michael Phelps and Katie Ledecky, you know, talk about a, a full circle moment for you having been at one point compared to Michael Phelps himself. How did that feel for you to be able to get that endorsement on your vulnerable, authentic take on the events? Really cool. Yeah. I mean, both of those. So it's funny, like Katie and I were kind of two ships passing. Like I was coming out of my career. She was just rising to her greatness in 2012. And so it's been really fun to have a relationship with her of just, and she's so respectful of kind of the passing of the torch from, you know, one athlete to another, obviously in the freestyle, she's broken all my records, which I always say anytime I if my record's going to get broken, it has to be broken by someone who works their butt off and is a genuinely good person. And then I'm, I'm okay with it relatively. Um, so that is definitely Katie. Um, and then Michael, yeah, I've known him since I was 13 years old and he was kind of an older brother figure to me. And so being able to now see, you know, what he's done on the mental health side of things and how he's kind of transitioned out of his career, um, has been really cool. And, and so it was, you know, very grateful that he was willing to endorse it. And, and we had a good, uh, a good conversation about it um, as I was going through the, the publishing process. You shared that now you have a lot of perspective on perhaps the why these blood clots happened for you. That language is always really hard to accept happened for you, especially when an event isn't as you'd hoped it would go and so much work having gone into your career. Let's talk a little bit about that transition from being in the pool constantly to now getting out of the pool. What was that like for you as you came to accept what was happening with your body? Yeah, I think number one, I mean, I had to grieve and I had to grieve. I think it, there's no time. We talked earlier. There's no time table with that. There's no rushing that like it just has to happen. And so I went through a stage because my career ended not on my own terms. Like I wanted nothing to do with swimming. I was just like, 
this ended bad. I, I had this feeling that, you know, again, because my entire identity was, was as an Olympic swimmer, like maybe people don't want to talk to me because I'm not swimming anymore. I mean, it sounds crazy, but it, it's how a lot of people feel. And so I, I just went away. I was like, I'm going to reinvent myself. I'm going to become this, you know, this corporate person and just excel at that and, and didn't address anything. Um, so I struggled for I mean, probably three, four years and not only, you know, going in and, and pretending that this massive part of me didn't exist, but also the support system, like all my, you know, teammates and people that I was close with, I, I really drifted away from um, people that understand you to your core, understand you're crazy, right? You're, you're wanting to go above and beyond and, and do whatever it takes to accomplish a really big goal. So that was probably one of the most challenging times in my life. I mean, three, four, five years and I was still excelling, but I was, I was doing so of coming home at night and, and crying my eyes out and then going and functioning, you know, so functioning well, right? Like people, my well, people thought I was doing well, but, but, you know, underneath it all, it wasn't. And like I said, it wasn't until I kind of came back and owned my story and then now found a way to really be involved back in the swimming community through, through our business Synergy Dryland that I feel way more complete and there's certainly still work to do, but I would say like I'm the most complete, happiest version of myself since my swimming career like a decade ago. Yeah. I'm really happy to hear that. And and thank you for sharing that. You articulated a bit of a career transition here first in that kind of dark period. Now in this period where you're really happy about the opportunity to give back. So tell us a little bit about what giving back looks like for you these days. Yeah. So through the business, we get to go and travel to teams. Uh, we get to talk to the athletes. And and part of it is, you know, we don't take on a ton of teams so that we can feel integrated with these athletes. And these athletes are the exact age I was when I was trying to make, you know, my first Olympic team, you know, their ages 10 to 18. So really, really critical times in, it, you know, an athlete's and a young person's life. And so being able to you know, be there for advice, be there for support, be there for that understanding of what they're going through. You know, obviously that the nerves before a meet or not feeling confident in what they're doing or as a female, like there's, you're going through so much and, and you're at the same time, like, you know, wearing a swimsuit and, and, you know, becoming a woman, all those things that is already tough as an, as a, you know, a young female, but then you add the athlete aspect onto it and that's even more challenging. So I would say that's been the most rewarding of, of just being able to, and I am big on not giving unsolicited advice. So sometimes it's just the presence of just being there and then, you know, being open to, for them to come to me if they need anything. Um, and then, you know, the other aspect is being able to go and share my story and, and talk with different individuals, different companies. Um, you know, obviously the athlete side of me loves talking with athletes, but there's so many lessons that, that go beyond into the workforce. I, I did work in sales for a long time. Uh, so I understand that aspect of, of being in the business world and all that comes with the ups and downs of that, especially in sales. So that piece, whether it's, you know, normal life or athlete life, I feel like the, the, just the sharing my story and being there to be a listening ear um, is extremely rewarding. 
you also mentioned at the top of this doing more work within that place of female empowerment. What does that look like for you these days? A couple different things. I mean, again, like I do a lot of work, um, you know, we'll take athletes from the teams and, and kind of pick certain ones off to give extra love and support to. So maybe it's connecting on a Zoom once a month. Maybe it's it's texting back and forth if they need it. You know, um, you know, maybe it's in person and we sit down. Um, but you know, I'm I'm very, very passionate about that because I just think that uh, the the more that there's visibility, the more that there's again an openness to listen. I, I think it's it's really a lot of times I felt like it's just either you know kind of shoved down my throat or it's um, what's the word? It's just it's just someone's talking at me about it, right? So it's like you almost don't have the ability as a young athlete or young female athlete to go wait a second, like this is how I'm feeling, or I didn't feel like that was okay. And then having the space to then vent or talk through it, right? And so I'm, I'm really, really big on that because I think it then allows the athlete the space to actually discuss how they're feeling and validate how they're feeling or give advice or talk through, hey, here's what I went through. Um, and so I think just having that presence, you know, I, I you know, on, on the Olympic team, having more female coaches, right? There, there aren't a ton, but I think now it's, it's becoming more and more common and you're just you're just more comfortable sometimes talking to you know a role model that is female or a mentor that is female, especially at that age. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God, the things that I would have told my younger self if I had someone that I felt like I could look at and they would understand me. Yeah, it would have been so monumental to have that mentor for you knowing that you are in this place of being a role model. How does that make you feel? Like it's a lot of responsibility. One, I I, I don't take it lightly. Uh, but I, I feel like again, it's that make sense moment. I've had some really positive experience with mentors, and I've had some maybe not so positive experiences. So I'm able to kind of pull from, you know, ways I've been helped. Um, you know, honestly, my mom is is the best at that. Like she's so good at not talking at me and being like, here's what you should do. Here's your advice, right? Because immediately you're like, oh, well, like, here's how I should feel, right? Like, you should be able to be in a space where you can express how you feel and have that be okay and be like, yes, that's normal and have that validation. And then I think you can explore from there. But my mom was always um, like probably the first person that showed me that that's how you support someone and that's how you mentor someone is, is just being a listening ear. And then obviously if someone's going to ask my advice, I, I certainly will give it and just give kind of all angles and, and my perspective. But it's it's definitely nice to feel like, okay, I, I've been there. I've done that. So I, I have I have that understanding without without even needing to say it, right? I, I don't even need to say, yeah, like I remember back in the day when it's like it's already known. So it's about that athlete or that female who who's going through it and, and them just being able to express themselves. You gave us some really helpful tips earlier about how to be a little bit more relentless, transitioning into confidence, something that you're clearly talking about all of the time, both with your athletes and within your other speaking engagements and to your followers and social media. Where do we begin on that? How do we garner more confidence in our day to day? Yeah. So for me, it was always around process. Like I was never someone that could just, I don't know if anyone can actually do that, this, even if they say it, like, it can't just be like, yes, like I am, I am 
able to do this. I am strong. I got this. Like those things are positive, but I needed to look back on a body of work and go, no, like I put in these paces. I was, you know, rocking out on my nutrition consistently for six months, right? I had all these different buckets and that was nutrition. It was sleep. It was in water. It was strength and conditioning. It was, you know, how, how I felt like I looked right. I was always the girl rocking mascara and earrings. Like that was always something like look good, feel good. Um, and so there was all these different aspects that I leaned on so that, you know, as I, again, I'm big on momentum, but as you kind of check those boxes and know that you're doing all those things that drives that confidence and whether that's in a boardroom or behind the blocks or you're about to do something really big in your life, you can reflect on on all of those things and know that you've done them. Um, and and that was that was the biggest source of confidence for me, for better or for worse. But it also keeps you accountable daily because you're like, hey, I'm gonna look back on this and I'm gonna draw from this when I really need that confidence. I better be checking all the boxes and doing all the things so that my confidence is at the you know the highest point when I need it. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely, it, it, it's easier. Uh, it's easier said than done, right? It can definitely be challenging. I think the other thing that I like to do is break it off into digestible pieces, right? Like if you look at a massive goal, like people always say like the Olympics, oh my gosh, every four years. So how are you sitting at the bottom of a mountain looking up and going, I have four years of work. That would be debilitating. <laughs> like that yeah. would just make you be paralyzed, right? And I think any big goal, a lot of times people don't even, they get so overwhelmed. They're like, I, I don't even know where to start, right? So like being, again, I'm big on this, but like mentors, coaches, friends, like sit down and be like, okay, well, what's step one? What's like the first little benchmark that I need to get to? And then you accomplish that and then you gain more confidence and then you get the next one, right? So they all drives you, you know, each little bit drives you further and further up the mountain. Um, and that to me is, is the key to success is just little bits. And again, easier said than done, having it be this day-to-day process is tough, right? But that's also why it's a big goal or why you, why you feel so amazing when you accomplish the goal, because if it was something that was like, just, just kind of, you know, something that you want, or if it's not that bad, right. You would be, you'd accomplish it and you'd be like, cool. You know, like it, it has to be something that's like, oh my God. And sometimes it's like, oh, like I hate this or, oh, the alarm clock goes off and I don't want to do this. Like the amount of times that I'm just like, oh my God, I don't want to do this. Right. But like you, ha- you look back and you're like, no, no, no. Like, okay. Like, but those have to be front and center daily or even the most motivated people in the world are not going to do them. Like it just won't happen. We're human. Like we want to be comfortable. We want to sit on the couch. Like we, <laughs> you know, like those are just human nature. So having those things that, that your little kind of tips and tricks for yourself um, is vital. You have made it very clear that you're passionate about both having role models as well as other people that you respect kind of in your immediate space to help lift you up, to get you to where you want to be. Who are those people for you? Yeah. So I would say, um, honestly, someone who's been a huge inspiration and mentor to me, uh, Jesse Itzler is, um, someone who from speaking to just encouraging me to, to go after it. Um, he and, and Sarah Blakely as well, his wife have been 
amazing um, in that way. And then I would say there's there's people I've had, um, you know, a coach uh, who I still talk to in the swimming world. I have, um, you know, someone who uh, on the business side for Synergy is, you know, in the swimming world. So they I talk to them. So I think it's really important too to like, you can't have just one mentor, right? Like there's different things that you're doing. So you go to different people for different things. And they're going to, I think having multiple perspectives also helps, right? Like I might get something from Jesse and be like, oh, that's a great idea. Okay. I'll do that. But I might have, you know, the, the person in the swimming world that I talk to, you know, every week to be like, oh, okay, that's, that's a good idea for that aspect. So don't pigeonhole yourself into one mentor um, because you're going to, you're going to glean, you know, little pieces of advice from each so, so fortunate for you to have so many people in your life that just really have influenced you in such, in such a positive way is it's Lars hell on the hill as hard as it looks. Yes, it is. <laughs> I saw it I is saw on your, hell on the hill for a your reason. feet um, <laughs> that you've yes. got it. So the one in the long, like the Hilly's half marathon, that's the one that is in, in, uh, Maine. Uh, but the one in Connecticut that's, I mean, it is four hours every time you get to, there's a hundred total hills to get like eight and a half miles. Like, I'm not kidding. Like it gets so steep that the next day my biceps are sore because I'm pressing on my legs to get up. Like you have to, it's, it goes, it's a metaphor for everything I've been saying. Like if you on hill 10, if you're like, oh my God, I have 90 more of these, you would stop. Like you would stop. (laughs) You have to just be like, okay, I'm going to go another five. Okay, cool. I'm going to go another, you know, but yeah, it's um, it's it's hell. <laughs> Incremental small wins, one exactly. hill at a time. Exactly. Someone comes to your Instagram page, they see a two-time Olympian, three-time medalist, a speaker, a world champion, et cetera, et cetera. When you look in the mirror, Katie, what is it that you see looking back at you? Oh my gosh, that's such a good question. Uh, I would say a uh I would say a strong, confident, work in progress, empowered female. Love that. <laughs> How is it for you to work with your husband? It's so fun. I mean, we, people always are like, oh my God, I could never. <laughs> but, you know, we obviously have our, our challenges. But I think the reason it works is that, you know, he is very much, he actually trained me at the end of my career. And so he is the one, he has the degrees and the certifications on the training side. Um, and I have very much the lens on the swimming of like, hey, this would work. And swimming's so different because gravity is not a factor. So there's all those aspects. But our strengths complement each other really well. And we have very, very different styles, which is obviously a good thing, sometimes a bad thing. But but I think overall, it's just, it's really fun to be able to, you know, travel. And we've traveled, flew 76 times last year and a lot of them, but it didn't feel, it didn't feel like work because he was always with me. You know, like typically when you travel, you're away from your loved ones or your spouse and you're like, oh, I just need to get home. But we would just make it like, oh, we're finished with the the work today. Let's go on a date, you know? So it's, I feel very fortunate that we have this crossover and I have my stuff and he has his stuff kind of outside of things, but we have this amazing overlap and it's just been really special to have him also come into the swimming world and like, he went to a swim meet uh, in Knoxville like a month ago and he was talking to all the people that I had known since I was 13. And I was like, this is so beautifully bizarre that he, <laughs> this is happening. Um, so it, it's really cool because at the, you know, 
I always wanted to have, you know, a USA cap that said Anderson on it and, and be able to have Hoff and Anderson. And he did, you know, it obviously was cut short because of the blood clot. So it's kind of this like really special thing that we're still able to be in the swimming world. He's still able to go to Olympic trials in 2024 and, and see every, see my world and see what it, what it was like for me. So uh, it, it's, uh, it's definitely a really cool thing, thing and, and we're grateful for it. What excites you right now, Katie? Oh my gosh. So many things. I feel like living in Tennessee, living in Nashville really excites me. We're, you know, around some really, really, uh, close friends. So, you know, being able to explore the city with them and, and get some really fun memories. Um, our business is synergy is doing really well. So I'm excited about that. And then, I would say uh, family is in the near future, so I'm excited for not announcing my pregnancy right now. <laughs> this is not a pregnancy announcement. This is not the announcement, but no, I, I, I think Although it's Although I'm a- flattered that you would even think for a second I would allow that to happen without us talking about it first. Yeah, I know. You're like, hold up. Why I'm like, whoa, who knew that you were going to come on Hurdle and give this oh big news? God. No, but it's the first time we've actually said – Hey, you know, we've been married, oh my gosh, seven plus years. And I think it's the first time we've, we've felt like, Hey, I think we're in a really good spot. Like you're never ready, obviously fully, but we're in a really good spot to feel like, you know, we want to build a family and we feel confident that, that we are in that place. So that's a really, uh, that's a spot I never thought I'd get to. So that's a, a really, a really cool place to be, uh, you know, for the near future. I love that. It sounds like you guys are really in alignment with where you're going and where you've been and excited about what's to come. Yes. All right. So final question here for you today, Katie, right now you have an opportunity to give yourself a piece of advice looking back on that hurdle moment when you were told that your career as you knew it at the time, had to come to an end. What advice would you give yourself knowing what you know now? Wow. I would say there's no rush. I just felt like I, my career ended and I felt like I instantly had to find the next North Star and the next thing that was going to define me. And I don't know how I could have avoided that, but I wish I had been able to stand in front of myself and be like, take your time. You, you know, you didn't make an Olympic team in a year. (laughs) You, you, you can, you can work through this and there's no rush. Like you're not behind. Right. And I always felt like because my career ended later that I was just behind. And so there was this, this panic that I needed to find something and do it and, and do it in an elite way and all, and just added a lot of unnecessary stress. And I think a lot of people feel that way of, you know, I'm this age, I have to rush, I'm behind, right? Because of social media or people posting things and there's a lot of time and you will get there and being patient is hard, but there's no rush. I'm hearing a lot of trust to the process here. Yes. Which is such an annoying thing to say because <laughs> it's so annoying, but it it really is what's necessary. And so yeah, trust the process. Say it to yourself to your blue in the face and Trust it. Trust it. Katie, I'm so happy that we were able to make this happen today. Tell the hurdlers if they don't follow you just yet, how do they keep up with you? How do they follow along with you? Give us your details. 
Yes. So I am very active on Instagram. So it's KT Hoff seven. So seven, cause lane seven was the lane that I made my first Olympic team in. Um, so KT Hoff seven. Um, and then, uh, my website is kthoff.com. So I update with podcasts and speeches and, and things like that. Beautiful. I'm over at Emily Abadi and at hurdle podcast, another hurdle conquered. Catch you guys next time. <laughs>